So we've been learning to walk in God's shoes, right? Walk in love is where we are in the text. In Ephesians 5, uh, this book is, is how, we, how do we as a community of believers display the image of God in our actions. The, the, the whole book is about the why and the how we act as followers of Christ, but not for our own personal sake, but for the sake of the church and the message of the gospel. We, we image God as a church body because the Christian life is not about us as individuals. We, we have a tendency to focus so much on the individualism of ourselves and our Christian life, and the reality is that the, this, the ethic that's being preached and taught in Ephesians is a relational ethic. Um, all the instructions we've been given on how to display the image of God as a church are tied on how we interact with each other. And so open to Ephesians 5, and let's begin to look at, there's two key actions that define what it means, that kind of summarize what it means to walk in love. And in verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Now, at the heart of Ephesians 1, Paul begins with a striking statement. He says, Be imitators of God. Right? He, he presents an impossible task, but he tells us how to accomplish the task. This is the only time in Scripture this phrase is used. This is Paul's supreme argument. It's the summary of everything he's been saying in, in the first four chapters. In fact, 4.32 and 5.2 should be considered one thought. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore... Be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. These two key actions described here, they, they summarize what it means to be an imitator of God. And this morning we're going to look at the first one. If we're going to be imitators of God, according to Ephesians 5, we must be people who forgive. So this morning, we're going to look at what it means to be people who forgive like God forgives. Now, I know sermons on forgiveness are never easy, and I don't take this lightly. It's been weighing on me for a couple of weeks. In fact, this might be one of the most difficult topics in Scripture because it's complex, and it draws out emotions, and it hits us in our most difficult time. But it's also the heart of what it means to be a Christian, to be a people who forgive like God forgives. I am very aware that for some of you, this is going to be a difficult sermon to hear. I know there are deep hurts caused by family and close friends. Uh, but as we work through this Christian concept, my prayer is that, that, that you would ask the Holy Spirit to begin to work in your heart and allow you to hear this in a fresh way. A way that will bring hope and, and peace and remove any anger and bitterness and resentment that maybe have been caused and, and what may be hindering you from learning to walk in love, to walk with God. If we're going to imitate God, who himself is a God of forgiveness, we've got to ask the question, what does God forgive? Now, we, we talk about forgiveness often in the sense of God forgave my sin, right? The cross happened, the atonement happened, Jesus died for our sins. And, and when we talk about it in such a generic way, I think we lose some of the focus on what it actually, what it is that God forgave in us. In the reform circles I run in, I don't, I don't know 
how many of you had this discussion, but we have it occasionally. Um, you have this conversation about holiness versus depravity, total depravity. I personally prefer the term radical corruption. But we'll, we'll, we'll say these like quick, witty things like, uh, instead of asking why do bad things happen to good people, we should ask why do good things happen to any of us, right? And we've quoted that. We heard somebody smarter than us say that. And, or things like, we're not sinners because we sin, we sin because we're sinners, or, or there's, you know, or, or with a little too much zeal, quote Romans 3, there's none righteous, no, not one. And those are all true statements, right? There's nothing wrong with those. But I fear for many of us, we so embrace this concept of, of this generic sense of forgiveness tied to depravity that we fail to see how truly depraved we really are. We, we become immune because we keep talking about it in ways where to the uninitiated, we actually end up sounding like the guy who's bragging on how big of a jerk he is. You know, y'all ever met that guy? I was like, hey, and you're right. Yeah, all right. So, because we focus on only one aspect of forgiveness, and it's this generic, general view of forgiveness, and it gives us a warped view of how forgiveness plays out in our everyday lives. We get so caught up in the big picture that God forgives sinners that we fail to focus on our own individual sins. But God has forgiven it all, the individual sins and the generic sin nature that's in us. He forgives the murderer who repents and turns to Christ of murder. He forgives the thief who repents and turns towards God of stealing. He forgives the sexually immoral. He forgives the adulterer. He forgives those who worship idols. But he also forgives the prideful and the jealous, and the gossiper, and the backbiter, and those who sow discord among their family, and those who plot to do evil against their brother, and those who race to do wrong. List the sin here, and God forgave that sin, that specific sin. Your sin. List your sin here, and God forgave that sin. The ones you're ashamed of, and the ones you're not ashamed of, but should be. He forgave all those that's what God forgives. He forgave it all. So ask yourself right now, if you're a follower of Christ, who has repented of their sin, what has God forgiven in you? And next we must ask, why does God forgive? There are, there are a lot of reasons God forgave us. But if we're going to be imitators of God, if we're going to forgive like God forgives, we have to look at a very specific reason in Ephesians on, on what it means to be people who forgive like God forgives. In the context of Ephesians and its instruction on how to be image bearers of God as a church, how to remain in unity as believers, and how we proclaim Christ in the world through our actions, we need, we need to look at the ultimate purpose for the cross and forgiveness granted to us in the atonement. See, God is not a God who's removed from us. Hebrews 2 says he identifies with us through his suffering, but the concept we have to understand in order to forgive like God forgives is tied directly to reconciliation. Look at Romans 5.9 with me real quick. I want you to turn there. Romans 5, verse 9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him from the wrath, saved by him 
from the wrath of God. Well, what we see right here is the wrath of God appeased. It's one of the reasons for the cross. But keep reading. Keep reading in verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom now we received reconciliation. While Christ's death was necessary, and sin had to be paid for, and God's wrath needed to be appeased, those are all part of the cross. That was not the ultimate purpose of the cross. The ultimate purpose of the cross was to restore our relationship with God. The relationship that wasn't just damaged, the relationship that was destroyed at the fall when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. This, this wasn't something we could accomplish ourselves. And so what does this mean of us? If we're going to forgive like God forgives, what's our end goal? Our end goal is the restoration of our relationship with the person who offended us. It's reconciliation. And I, I know internally right now, some of y'all are screaming at me, saying, you don't know my situation, right? And that may be true. And I want you to know I'm not dismissing your pain. I don't say this flippantly or with arrogance. But if you're going to forgive like God forgives, if we're going to be imitators of God, if we're going to walk in love, we need to seek reconciliation. Ultimately, for any of us, the purpose of forgiveness is restoration. That's what God sought in us, was to restore our relationship with him through forgiveness, through the cross. We also need to look at how does God forgive When I ask, how did God forgive? I'm not talking about the atonement. I, I, I'm not referring to the method of forgiveness. That was the cross. I'm talking about the results of the atonement. Christ died and was buried as a spotless lamb that secured our forgiveness, and he brings us into the family of God. We're now family. We're now children with all the rights and privileges and the relationship that Christ has with the Father. But what's the end result of God's forgiveness for us? What does that look like? There, there, there are dozens. Somebody told me there's 78. I don't, I don't know if that's true or not. But that there's 78 scenarios tied to forgiveness in the Bible. But I want to just blow through a couple of them, really, a few of them really quickly. Job 14, 17. My transgression is sealed up in a bag, and you wrap it in iniquity. God... God Bags up our sins and throws them away like they're the trash. Isaiah 44, 22. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me for I have redeemed you. And you can see this, this picture of, of wiping away the condensation on a mirror. Psalm 103, 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. God takes away our sins. If you're going west, you will always go west, right? You can go north, and eventually you'll be going south again. But west, you'll always be going west. East, you'll always be going east. There's no end. Micah 7, 19. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread, on our, tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. God treats our sins as if they're a defeated foe. Isaiah 38, 17. Lo, for my own welfare I had great bitterness. It is you who has kept my soul from the pit of nothingness, and you have cast all my sins behind your back. 
Isaiah 43, 25, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will remember your sins no more. We could get into more. We see the results of the cross when God says, as far as he concerned, our sins never existed. This is the result of the cross. This is how God forgives. He forgives fully, and he forgives completely. And if, if you're like me, you're saying right now, but we're not God, right? We, we can't forget. And I get that. We can't. Not on purpose. And you're right. We're not God. But, but, but if we're, we're still told to imitate God and forgive like God forgives, so how in the world are we going to do that? How do we forgive? This is, this is the part where things get sticky for believers. And if you'll just stick with me for just a few more minutes. I, and re, I want you to resist the temptation for the next few minutes to raise the whatabouts. You all know what the whatabouts are? Right? As I bring things up, you're going to be like, but what about this? And what about this? Right? Every time I have a conversation about forgiveness, and trust me, over the years I've had plenty of them as I've been trying to work through this even in my own mind. I raise the whatabouts. You, you, you know, when we get into the personal side of things, because forgiveness is complex, and your whatabouts are valid questions. But, but I want you to consider what's being said without trying to qualify it right this minute, or possibly even trying to let yourself off the hook. How do we forgive? Now, the first thing we can do to forgive is to not be easily offended, right? That's actually in Scripture. In fact, it's the heart of what it means to be tenderhearted towards one another. Don't be easily offended. That's the first way we can be people who forgive. Ecclesiastes 7, 21 and 22 says, Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Right? Proverbs 19.11, we could probably, most of us, quote it. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. James 1.19 says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And then we get to a famous passage on this from Matthew 7, where Jesus said, Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but fail to remove the beam from your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from my eye while there is a beam in your own? Now, I'm not making light of this, but we know there's some people who are just looking to be offended. Right? That's what you hear right now in all the political conversations. There's a group that's just out there easily, be easily offended. I'm going to tell you all something right now. I, I watch social media feeds, and um, no particular political ideology has the, a monopoly on being easily offended. And um, you can take that however you want. You can just choose your side and then go. But you know, we also see it in church life. We, we, it's what Ephesians is talking about. Offended by things that weren't intended to be offensive. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. It's a glory for somebody to overlook an offense. And, and we, those are the kind of people we need to be. Tender-hearted, kind to one another, tender-hearted towards each other, giving each other the benefit of the doubt is the way I like to word that. Because if somebody says something to me about somebody in this church that I know that just sounds off, 
I don't assume it's true until I find out for sure. I'm like, mm, that just sounds out of character for what I know about that person. And I would hope people would do that for me. Right? Am I going to mess up? Yes, I am. But make sure I messed up before you just, you know, just go out there and be offended. There's also something you got, we, we all need to realize that we don't get to be offended on behalf of other people. You all know what I mean by that? If, if, some, if something was said or done to someone else and they weren't offended by it and it was directed towards them, we don't have any right to be offended for them. It wasn't our offense. So we create all these issues tied to forgiveness that, that, that just make the thing more complex because the relationship was never hindered between the two people. And now we've got this third party over here who's offended by something that wasn't really any of their business to begin with. You see this more in families than you do anywhere else. But happy is the man who's not easily offended. But honestly, these types of things are usually small things or statements made without consideration or unintentional actions um, that actually weren't intended to be offensive. But I want you to know I'm not saying overlook sin. That's not what this is saying. It's saying don't be offended when there's not really an offense there. But what do we do when it's impossible to not overlook the offense? What do we do when when it's, it's so serious and so severe, or when it's so sinful, it shouldn't be overlooked. That's where the rubber meets the road for us today. When we've been genuinely offended, how do we forgive? And this is the, where things get tricky. The first thing we are supposed to do, according to Scripture, is seek genuine repentance from the person that offended us. But wait, Pastor Scott, they offended me. Why do I have to go to them? Right? Shouldn't they come to me? Isn't that the way it works? They offended me. They have to come to me and say, I'm sorry for offending you. Right? Well, yes and no. Matthew 5.23 says, yeah, they should go to the person that they offended. But what if they don't know they offended you? Right? The reality is Matthew 5.23 doesn't let us off the hook. We can't say, well, they knew what they did. So until they come to me, I'm not going to forgive them. There's a dual responsibility for the offended and the offender. And I'm only speaking to the offended this morning, right? Talking to the offender, that's actually a different, different sermon. See, we offended God. He sought us and he called us to repentance in the same way we go to those who have offended us and give them the opportunity to genuinely repent, to hopefully see godly sorrow in the person that offended us. This is the heart of Matthew 18, 15. If another believer sins against you, what do we do? We go to them in private and we point out the offense and then what happens? If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won the person back. You've restored the relationship. And like the Father, we seek reconciliation that only comes through repentance, and we must forgive, and that requires us to actively pursue forgiveness, which means we go to the person and say, you wounded me. And I am very aware on, based on personal experience on how difficult this can be at times, right? I am not just up here just 
spewing flippantly. Our flesh fights us constantly on this. But the one who is offended has a responsibility to seek reconciliation. And we don't have to accept the person as they are, but we are required to seek reconciliation and forgive when the person repents. We don't have a right to ignore the offense and say, I don't want to be confrontational. Acceptance is not forgiveness. You know, we can't just say, well, I'll ignore them because that's just the way they are, right? That's just, that's just, you know, that's just Scott. That's just the way he is. You know, and also saying to yourself, I've forgiven them when you've made no attempt at reconciliation is not full forgiveness. We forgive like the Father forgives. We walk in love by being people of forgiveness. That's how we imitate God. But what happens if we don't forgive? Never in Scripture are we given the option to not forgive. It's the heart of Christian character. If we don't forgive, to put it bluntly, you are in gross sin. You are actually in direct disobedience to Scripture, commands in Scripture, and, I, and my fear is that the result of this is that you're severely hindering your sanctification because you're building this wall between you and God and the daily mercies that He pours out on us. At the end of the Lord's Prayer... Jesus gives a warning about what happens when Christians don't forgive. Matthew 6, 14, 15 says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, this isn't saying that we can lose our salvation. I've seen people use this passage to say, Oh, look, if we don't forgive, we're going to lose our salvation. That is not what this is talking about. This is a this is not talking about that type. It's not talking about judicial forgiveness at the cross, that type of thing. He's talking about family. He's telling us that though we are his children, if we harbor unforgiveness, we will remove the daily mercies that Psalm says we are renewed every morning. We find ourselves out of fellowship with God, and this wall gets higher as we grow more in bitterness and hardness of heart. And, and, and hardened to forgiving. In fact, in the context of Matthew 6, tied to the Lord's Prayer, I believe what he's saying here is that if you harbor unforgiveness in your heart, your prayers will not be answered. That's what happens if we don't forgive. What happens if we just can't forgive? Unforgiveness, I believe, is the most unchristian thing a person can do. There have been... A few times in my ministry, usually in the heat of the moment, that I've heard a Christian say, I'll never forgive that person. And my first thought is, don't say that. Don't say that. A Christian should never say, I'll never forgive. You can say, I don't think I can forgive. You can say, I don't know how I'm going to forgive. Say anything except, I'll never forgive. For Christian forgiveness, it's not an option. We forgive because we've been forgiven. And that's exactly what Paul means in Ephesians 32 when he says, we forgive one another as God in Christ forgave us. And I don't say this lightly. In fact, it hurts me to even think about this. 
But if somebody claims to be forgiven of God, and they claim to have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, and they say, I'll never forgive, or I don't even want to forgive, I really do question whether they're really a believer or not. And I mean that genuinely. I want you to look at a parable that teaches us this. I'm just going to read this parable. Just listen to me. Y'all are familiar with this. It's the parable of the unforgiving servant. It says, Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, which was four times more than the Pharisees said we should forgive. And Jesus said to them, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And then he goes on and says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle his accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, which was millions of dollars. And he could not pay. His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment be made. But the servant fell on his knees and implored him. He said, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. Millions of dollars said, we're good. You don't owe me. Your debt is paid. But that same servant went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii, which was, we'll just say 100 bucks. And seizing him, he began to choke him and said, pay me what you owe. And his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were distressed. And they went and reported to the master what had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And you should not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all the debt. A debt he would never pay off. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You want to be an imitator of God? Walk in love by forgiving as you've been forgiven. I, I want us to wrap up today by taking a test. Don't, don't, you did not a test you needed to study for. It's easy. It's pass fail, right? I want us to take this test and, and, and judge our own hearts. Are we harboring for unforgiveness? But before we take this test, I want to share a story with you about how I failed this test three weeks ago. And Aaron, are you up there? Pause the recording. The story I'm about to tell.